any teaching of the Buddhas that doesn't address this, well then it's a misrepresentation of the Buddha. You, you can, you can uh, get Zen tea bags and, and Tibetan uh, singing bowls and, and, and gorgeous tankas and, and so on and, 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 and f- put these things up around the house and, and feel that, uh, that you have some affinities with the Buddha's way and, and, and that's fine. You know, having a Buddha in the garden can be a, a good stimulus for thinking peaceful thoughts and that's okay. But you know, the Buddha wasn't talking about some sort of synthetic substitute for happiness. He was talking about what he realized was a self-existent quality of happiness, a quality of being that was unshakable, that was not anything that could be grasped at, didn't need any promotion, and was always there behind all the pain that we spend our lives strategizing against. We all, this is the human experience, we all suffer, but we develop these very sophisticated strategies of avoidance of the pain of our life that we call personality and personal history and personal credentials. And all of this we, we encase around what is true and what is real, which is the fact that through our heedless relationship to life we create suffering. Not necessarily pain. Pain is one thing. You know, even if you're fully enlightened, you're still going to experience pain. I took great heart from reading the Buddha's teachings on how he used to enjoy sitting on Vulture's Peak in the morning, sunning his arthritic back in the, in the morning sunshine, relieving from the pain. And you know, the, the pain, that's just part of this package. But if we don't add anything to the pain, well, then the pain doesn't become suffering. But what we do in truckloads is uh, add all sorts of fancy ways of uh, complicating our pain and turning it into suffering. So this is what the uh, Buddha was trying to address. And he spent his whole life from the time of his enlightenment to the period of his death, the time of his death, uh, addressing for different people, different situations, ways of, of turning this around to not not be fooled by the way suffering appears. That's, uh, at least that's how I see it. Uh, that's how I receive the Buddha's teaching. That very profound, very deep, very subtle, all-inclusive teaching that means that whatever suffering we're experiencing on whatever level, subtle, gross, physical, mental, emotional, whatever suffering we're experiencing, there is a way that we can receive this and turn it around, not be fooled by how it appears. How it appears, I don't know about you, but to me, after 33 or 4 or something years of of practicing as a Buddhist monk, when I'm suffering, it's still very normal to have a feeling of somehow it shouldn't be this way that I'm failing or the world is failing and yet that that perception that way of receiving suffering is something extra 
You know, that is something that I add to it. And it doesn't help. Yeah. Now, you know, obviously I'm not talking about the level whereby we, you know, you see some huge injustice going on and you say, oh, well, that's appropriate. Well, of course, we're not talking about it's appropriate. It's not about appropriate or inappropriate. We're talking about that emotional uh, extra that we add to where we resist the suffering. We resist it with this, it can be with indignation. Like, I'm sure all of us are aware right now of uh, the horrors that are going on in Burma. And you, you can't not be aware of it. And how do we address this? What do we do with this? I mean, those of you that come here regularly will obviously notice we have the Burmese monk's robe over the shrine as a, as a symbolic gesture of helping us bear in heart and mind the, the connection that we have with those brave uh, people who are making a, an incredible sacrifice uh, to stand up against something that is very abusive. And we've had many phone calls and emails over the last week, as I'm sure you would understand, uh, asking us, what can you do? talking to people about how, how, you, how you meet something as uh, tragic as this. And one of, the, one of the ways of meeting it is, is a feeling of, well, it shouldn't be this way. Um, yeah, indignation. Now, uh, in contemplating this predicament, on this level, I mean, there are, there are lots of other things, lots of other ways of approaching this in, in terms of things that can be done physically and you know, letters that can be written and, and things that can be said and so on. But, you know, on this occasion, this place, approaching it from a contemplative perspective, you know, contemplating this predicament where you, you see such suffering and you feel the pain. And, you know, how do we meet this pain from a, on the inner level? Yeah, from a contemplative perspective, how do we meet it? And, and this is our practice, I think. In, in, a way, um, in a way, I would say, we all need to learn to welcome the challenge. You know, of course, we don't welcome the tragedy. Um, that, that would be, that's impossible to, to, to think. You know, such cruelty and such obscenity, such an abuse of power. But, where we feel challenged, as I know I do, I myself, since last week when I was in Italy and this whole thing started becoming what it has become now. The feeling, a really feeling challenged. What do you do about this? How do you approach it? How do you meet it? So, as I was saying a minute ago, if we come across a feeling of it shouldn't be this way, indignation, well, I don't think we want to push past that. Because the degree to which we're shocked, for instance, I know, but to some degree, I, I have been shocked. See, how could this happen? How? You know, I've been to Burma several times. I love the Burmese. I, I feel wonderfully at home in Burma. Going to the Shwedagon, as far as I'm concerned, the Shwedagon is well, the center of the universe, if not the center of this planet. I mean, it's, it's a, a, a wonderful place. I had some very beautiful times there. And with Burmese people there and all around the world, and how could this happen? And, but to the degree that one is shocked about this, I think it, it, it shows up something, doesn't it? It shows up a certain sort of naivety, like, you know, the world is really a nice place, isn't it? The world is really, you know, we're all just 
doing Buddhism together and loving the Dhamma and having nice food and, and, and building nice monasteries and nice retreat centers and so on and all having a nice time. And we can, I would say, there's a risk that we can get intoxicated by that side of it. You know, the, the pleasure that comes from meditation and from good spiritual companionship is a wonderful thing and a very valuable thing, a precious thing indeed. But that's more or less a side effect. As I was saying, the Buddha's teaching is not about you know, synthesizing some sort of artificial transitory good feeling about ourselves. It's not a new age project about feeling good about ourselves. But it's about cultivating the wisdom and understanding that sees clearly the truth of the way things are, is able to see in any situation what's happening and then from that perspective of clarity be in the optimum position to be able to respond with compassion, to act wholeheartedly, wholebodily, wholemindedly. That's the point of the Buddha's teaching. And so when I find that I, I get a little shocked by it, uh, I might like to think, well, I'm just empathizing with them and the, the feeling the sadness of the predicament, but I think there's also, if I'm honest, uh, an element of naivety there that I just don't like to think about what's really going on in this human realm. You know, it's not a nice place, actually. Yes, there are some wonderful things go on and some wonderful experiences, but most of the world is actually having a bad time. We're in the 10% that are very privileged. Uh, again, as I've said a number of times, 90% of the, the planet doesn't have water to drink as clean as the water we flush down the toilet. One of the reasons for this recent flare-up in Burma is because simply people are not eating. You know, they're only having breakfast. They don't get anything more to eat. 30% of the children are, are malnourished. And you may not realize this, but Burma is one of the richest, potentially one of the richest countries in Southeast Asia. Before World War II, it was online on to become one of the richest. Because in terms of resources, phenomenal uh, resources that it has there. But uh, as we all know now, it's been, this has been very seriously abused for a very long period of time by a few maniacs who happen to have technology at their service. And that's also, I think, something useful to, to bear in mind. You know, what's, you know, why is this happening? Why are they getting away with this? There's so many hundreds of thousands of people saying no to a very small handful of people. Now, the small handful of people are saying that actually there's only a few people rebelling. Well, this is not the case. We all realize this. I was just looking at the uh, Observer, the Sunday Observer, before I came over here and the, the riddle cartoon in the, the middle of the newspaper, which is often quite poignant. had a, a picture of a, uh, a skinny, scrawny, midget, bald-headed, saffron-clad Buddhist monk looking up and saying, the whole world is watching, and then this gigantic great military boot about to squash him saying, I know and I don't care. Now, how do they get away with that? How do they get away with that? Well, one of the things I think is worth looking at is, for instance, the part that technology plays in it. If they didn't have technology, there's no way they could do that. If they weren't supplied with arms like they are from China or like they were from Britain you know, during the Second World War, armed to the teeth, um, if they didn't have all these armaments, you know, would they be able to, the small handful of people, be able to behave like this? Oh, the, 
And I think that says something about the way we relate to technology. I, certainly, I've, I've been contemplating that lately, thinking about how we use technology or are we used by it. The uh, media, the way the media affects us. I think we're, I would say that we're relatively fortunate in this country with uh, what we have in, 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 in the BBC as much as uh, a lot of criticism can be levelled at the BBC. There's also a lot of, I think, um, good journalism, very good journalism comes through the BBC and if you compare this to what goes on in some other countries, we are very fortunate. At the time, some of you may already know this, but at the time of the, for instance, the uh, toppling of the, uh, the uh, statue of Saddam Hussein um, and the... Uh, of all the news broadcasters all around the world were covering this story. Now there's one big company in America that um, has two organizations. It has the national organization and the international organization. And the national organization kept showing this picture of the statue being toppled over and over again all day. And that was at the full screen, this uh, statue being toppled. The international version has a split screen. Half was showing the statue being toppled and the other half was showing the atrocities of what's been going on, the war, all the injured people in Iraq. Absolutely ghastly. Um, just horrendous. Probably a lot of us are aware of now of what has been going on in Saudis. They know what they're doing. You know, they, they, the way they cover the war in America is that it's a game. You know, it's, it's war games. And it's just like if you're on some sort of a video game. And this is this is just this is just having fun in a way, and this is technology, isn't it? In terms of contemplating uh, this predicament we find ourselves in right now, of how to receive the suffering of what's happening in Burma, I do think we need to uh, quite rightly think about the uh, the effect of technology. What do we submit ourselves to? What do we allow ourselves to be? Uh, convinced by and how can we address it well, I think you know, we need to be very circumspect and if we have a commitment to awareness if our commitment to is awareness if our commitment to practice is to awareness not just to entertainment, to good feelings then even, even the pain, even the tears uh, I personally cried buckets over the last two weeks over what's happening in Burma but that, and feeling terribly challenged by it, you know, just feeling so impotent, not be able to do anything about it. But even that challenge, even that pain, is not something going wrong. Yeah. We can, we can, we can avoid it. We say, oh, I just, I'd rather feel good. You know, and somebody was saying to me today that, um, say, oh well, all we can do is, is spread meta. And I, I don't know that if, in the way they said that, they weren't feeling like, you know, this spreading matter was some sort of a second-rate uh, level of practice. Yeah, that, uh, you know, that there's nothing we can really do about it. We just spread matter as if that's not significant. But there's two things there. There's one thing, there is a lot more we can do about it. We can really feel the pain. This is what human beings can do. We do have the capacity for empathizing. And if our commitment is to awareness and not just to good feelings, well, then the pain is not going to threaten our feelings, uh, our practice. 
if, our, if we are committed is to awareness, not to mind, not just to concentration or to having a good feeling about ourselves and life, well then, even when we feel like this is more than I can handle, the feeling of this is more than I can handle is also something that we can take a deep breath, expand and bear with. Unless we have, we believe in the, the stories that we're going on in our mind that, that say that uh, we really can't handle this. Yeah. Well, our commitment to awareness means that we know these are just stories. And these stories that go on in our mind that says you're like this and you're like that, you're this kind of person, you're that kind of person, and you're hopeless, you're a fa- failure. Uh, uh, our commitment to awareness, to awareness means that we can listen to those stories in our heads, we can come back to the body, get our frame of reference of mindfulness established and feel what it feels like to be inadequate. What does it feel like to feel inadequacy? I'm inadequate. I feel hopeless. That does not have to define us. We do not have to become hopeless or inadequate just because we feel hopeless or inadequate. Feeling hopeless or feeling inadequate, feeling angry. That's interesting. Some of these news broadcasts that have been coming out seem to have emphasized the anger of uh, the Burmese people as if the anger is some sort of a virtue. I think that's... uh, I would have liked to have, if they could have possibly, spent more time actually interviewing some of the monks who, who weren't being angry, who were really maintaining focus on, on the kind of clarity and stillness. You know, you, you probably heard how, at least in the beginning, the monks were telling our lay people, don't get involved in this, because if you do, this will give the military an excuse to have a go at you. So long as the monks stayed peaceful and, and didn't, step outside of what was their domain, then they felt there was a statement that could be made. But there is something in our world that sees such anger as sometimes righteous. Well, um, from a practice perspective, we, we need to look at that. It's very tempting. Passion and upthrust of indignation. How dare they? It's just, it gets a, you get such a rush off it. You know, I hate those evil generals. I mean, just so hateful. Is that helpful, really? I mean, does that really give you a lot of energy? And that's what they're running on. You know, that's what they're running on. All these wars, you look at what goes on. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, just across there, you know, just a couple of hours away in uh, former Yugoslavia, there's hate and terror that was being perpetrated and and the, the, the... Crimes are happening there. Why? Because people are feeding on hatred and fear. If you get possessed by that stuff, you can get tremendous energy, you get tremendously focused, and you can do the most unthinkable things. Just unthinkable in cold blood. Why? Because, why? Because we've lost our humanness. We've lost our humanness. We've lost the, what makes a human a human is the capacity for awareness. That's what makes humans different from other animals is we can reflect on our wild passions. Yes, we all feel anger. We all feel rage. We all feel lust. We all feel fear. These are normal passions for animals. But this animal has the faculty of sati, which means with sati and sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension, there can be the cultivation of wisdom, of banya. That makes us different. And so when we compromise that sati, we compromise the awareness, we actually really cease to be what we can be as human beings.
And so to allow our minds and hearts to become possessed with rage, with indignation, even though there's a certain temptation to do so, I think we want to really be careful about that. Does that help presence? Does that help clarity? And the Dalai Lama is a wonderful example in this, where often he's been people try to draw him into saying something nasty about the Chinese. And, uh, and he's very clear. He just simply says, if I allow anger to take over my mind, in my heart, I can't see clearly anymore and then I can't do my job. And the Buddha was very clear about this, that even though you know, he talked about being in the midst of troubling, to be in the midst of those who are troubling, those who are suffering, to not let ourselves become taken over by the pain, by the suffering, is the path of wisdom. You know, the doubt can come and say, well, if I don't get indignant or if I don't get, allow myself to really go into this grief that I feel, maybe I'm just being cold-hearted. Well, that kind of doubt and uncertainty, that's something also that, from a contemplative perspective of how to address this sort of pain, well, we need to look at that. Doubt can come up. But the doubt, if we hold the doubt in, in, in an appropriate way, the doubt actually takes us to deep questions. We can, if we're not mindful, we can perceive doubt as being an obstruction of practice. Doubt is, again, we take it as an indictment against ourselves, I'm failing, you know, because that happens to go against a certain sort of conditioning we had, you know, you're as good as you can be sure about things. In school, you, you more often you can put your hand up and say, I know, sir, yes, sir, uh, well, then the more uh, points you get. And, of course, you know, to, be, to be able to admit that I don't know is very difficult. I, I admired Karen Armstrong the other day on the moral maze when she was being cornered by one of those really picky panellists uh, on a particular difficult issue. I don't know if any of you heard the program, she was being questioned about, uh, she was talking about her mother being kept alive when she didn't want to be at the time of her death and and they they were actually angling from a position of really more suitable for, for a courtroom than for a, a moral debate. But uh, they, they cornered Karen Armstrong on this point and instead of coming out with something that she, just some clever idea, and she is a very clever woman, she just said, I don't know on that point. I don't know. And I admired that. Yeah, when you're under pressure, you know, you're supposed to know. She's invited on the panel because she's an ex- expert. Uh, but because she is actually committed to inquiry, yeah, she's committed to inquiry. She was able to say when she didn't know that she didn't know. And so when, for instance, um, we are faced with, with this sort of a question and the, the situation, the question comes up and then we feel doubt, we don't have to read doubt as actually, I'm a failure, because I feel doubt. If we, if, we, if we don't take sides for or against the doubt, if we follow what the Buddha talked about as the middle way, yeah. it's taking sides for, taking sides against, and then there's the middle way of being just with, just with what is as is, as a whole body mind, here now, uh, then doubt takes us deeper. 
until we feel our questions, our real questions. And our real questions are not threatening. Our real questions are something that we can feel very good about. These are questions from the heart. These are the questions that, basically, those questions are the same thing as faith. Those questions come out of faith. Our deepest questions are really a symptom of our deepest faith. We do trust. That's why we're all in this. We do trust. There is a real reality. This is not just chaos. It looks like chaos. On the outer level there's chaos, but that's just the outer level. On a deeper level there's order. In Buddhist we call there is Dhamma. There is reality. There is a real reality. There is law. We trust that. It's not a world of, of moral and cognitive relativism like some people would like us to think. There is law. And because we trust in that, we have faith in that, we have confidence in that, then we can ask our questions. We can receive our questions. We can allow our questions. We don't have to be intimidated by our questions. How do I deal with something like this? It becomes something that gives rise to interest. How do I deal with the situation? This is life. This is not something going wrong. It's very easy to say this is something going wrong or it shouldn't be this way. This is not anything going wrong. And it's not a question of should or shouldn't. It's just so. But how do I, as somebody committed to truth, to wisdom, to compassion, meet it you know, with, with, with uncompromising faith in real reality, with a welcoming and a, and a, and a connection with our real heart questions, and then with another quality, which is equally and profoundly important, and I was talking about the other day, that is patience. Then I would say we have the ingredients of our practice. These three things work together. And we don't have to be afraid. Yes, fear will come, but even when there's fear, like, you know, what's happening to our world? And I hear that quite a bit from people. People write to me and, and talk to me and, and there is a lot of fear around um, you know, it, what's happening to our planet and, and there's certainly plenty of evidence that um, things are not going in a good direction but we don't have to be afraid of fear you know, fear can be functional if a um, one of those kind of horribly bred dogs that don't have any brains not like real dogs, real dogs are actually uh, are just part of, the sort of uh, part of humans but really, I mean humans are only really human when they've got a dog with them you know, I mean you know, dogs are really, they're really part of the human world, but there are some dogs that have been bred unfortunately in a way whereby they lose their humanness and they, they see a human being and they, all they want to do is just bite you and eat you now, okay, so if one of, these, one of these nasty genetically modified dogs is going for your ankles, do you feel afraid? Yes. Is that neurotic? No. <laughs> you know, why do you feel afraid? Well, it's because your blood, it's, it's adrenaline. It's what your perception tells you. Adrenaline is released, your blood vessels constrict, and you've got more energy to move, which is what's supposed to happen. You know, that's intelligence. Fear can also be intelligence. It's one of the things Krishnamurti was good on. You know, Krishnamurti was giving a talk in some great big auditorium somewhere and, and he'd finished his talk and there's a time for questions and, and there was somebody up in the balcony up there asked him a question and, and said, Krishnamurti, you say we should be free from fear but if I didn't have any fear, I would jump off this balcony. 
And Krishnamurti replies, he says, Sir, that is not fear, that is intelligence. It is intelligence. So why do we always, why do we always feel that when we feel afraid that we're failing? You look at the world, you read the family, it looks terrible. We, sh- we should feel afraid. You know, there's time to do something. But fear is not always neurotic. I mean, is desire always a good thing? I mean, do we love all our desires? I mean, no, we understand with desire, well, some desires actually are completely out of order. You just kind of, okay, we'll just kind of wrap that one up in some good quality, non-judgmental here and now, body-mind awareness, <laughs> and uh, process it, okay? Or, or anger. You know, we don't, we don't treat all our anger as being totally valid, do we? We don't believe in the way our anger appears. We say, no, actually some anger is completely inappropriate. So we wrap it all up in good quality here and now, body, mind, judgment, free awareness, and we process it. So why is it with fear that when we feel afraid that we get afraid of our fear and we get so immediately judgmental of ourselves or judgmental of the world or judgmental of whatever it is that triggered the fear? Well, it can only be through a lack of investigation. We get fooled by the way it appears to be. We get fooled by the world. You know, this is where our practice is limited. This is where we take leave of our refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Allow ourselves to be fooled, to be impressed, to be intimidated. So, the situation that we're faced with, you know, if it triggers the fear, let's be careful that we don't perceive the fear as something going wrong with ourselves or with the world. We can listen to the fear, let it take us to our doubt, let it take us to our questions, let it take us to our our faith, let it take us to our compassion, to our feeling more deeply, and deepening our investigation. And discovering the capacity that, that we have as human beings that even... Even when there's fear, even when there's sadness, even when there's tears, that there can still be love, there can still be compassion. That doesn't mean to say that that because we feel sad that we don't have love and kindness or we don't have compassion. No, I would say it's quite the opposite, that if we have got well-established love and kindness, we have got well-established compassion, that we can feel sadness, we can feel sadness fully and freely, we don't get intimidated by it. We don't get taken over by it. I was saying a minute ago, people sometimes perceive practicing loving kindness as a sort of second-rate, wishy-washy kind of uh, pseudo-practice. Well, it can be. Put a smile on your dial and kind of try and conjure up some kind of smarmy good feeling about you and everybody else. It, It sometimes is presented like that and it can be like that. It's like sticking skin cream over some kind of pussy boil hoping that if you can just make the skin look good you're going to feel better well really what happens is basically you need to lance the boil and let the pus come out and so you know meta meditation can be misrepresented and sometimes it does get given um, a bad press but that doesn't mean to say that meta meditation when it's done right doesn't work doesn't work for us in protecting our hearts and strengthening our hearts and, and our minds and also bringing benefit to others. Now, just how it works, we don't necessarily know. And I, again, I, I'm very grateful for 
a little teaching I got very early on in my years as a young monk in Thailand when I was living in this monastery, um, the monastery of uh, Wapawon in Bangkok, and the abbot was then uh, the, well, the Somdet uh, Nyana Sangwon, uh, a very wonderful monk. And although he held the position of the Supreme Patriarch in Thailand um, and had a lot to do with all sorts of politics and so on, he was not a political monk. He was a, a monk very committed and very able in his practice. And I personally feel hugely privileged and indebted to him for his warmth and his friendship and his wise instruction and his companionship. He used to invite me every evening after evening chanting to go up to his upstairs in his kuti. I'd be there before he got there because he was still busy dealing with things, but I'd be sitting there and he'd come in about nine o'clock. It was just the two of us and he, after a long day of attending to his duties and he would just lean against the wall there and, until he you know, settled in and then, and then shuffle forward and in front of the shrine and then just settle into his practice again. And after an hour, I would leave and he was still there and this was every night. And, and a, a wonderful example, a very beautiful person. Anyway, there was a, a situation when the uh, wife of the uh, previous American ambassador, who I knew quite well in Bangkok in those days, she was a disciple of this, this teacher and, and she asked him the question about practicing loving kindness. Does it really do any good for anybody? And of course, where she was coming from is the culture that we're all conditioned by where you, you pray for other people. And that's what we've been taught. And you pray and you, and you look for the results. And uh, Somdien Yana Sangwon said, well, whether it works or doesn't work, we do it and we emphasize what's going on here. Now, he, didn't, he, he didn't even engage in whether it, it worked or didn't work. He, he referred to it. So it works or doesn't work. You know, I hear your question, but what we do is we keep an eye on what's going on here. Mm. And this is the priority, that if we're not coming from the right place, then even if we have the most altruistic, well, we think they're altruistic wishes, they may not be altruistic. They may be very selfish. You know, our loving kindness, may all beings be well, may the world be lovely and everything. It could just be another kind of, you know, pseudo-spiritual practice that we're doing just to exercise our already overinflated egos, trying to manipulate the world to make it into a lovely place to suit me. Can be. However, if we've got our mindfulness properly established here, then we can get a reading on where are we coming from. Is it from our commitment to reality? Do we, are we practicing loving kindness because we see how being caught in ill will and resentment and being intimidated by fear distorts our hearts and minds? Yeah. And because we appreciate this, then we want to protect our hearts and minds from ill will, from aversion, from fear. Yeah. With, with that understanding, well, then we can engage in, in wishing, sincerely wishing, engaging in the teaching the Buddha gave, like the image he said of a mother with her only child, that the, the archetypal image of selflessness. You know, to pick that image up and to dwell on that image until we too learn to feel the selflessness, the wish that beings be free from suffering, that beings be well. And to let that wish, let that conscious wish strengthen our hearts and protect our minds from heedless thoughts that, that come into them. Now, because of the way that we are programmed, then we can't help but thinking about the effect of our practice. That's just natural. And so, yes, the Somdet says that, but still, we are interested in these things, and, 
And these days, it's uh, it is interesting to see the degree of um, the amount of of um, research has gone into this, and I can't quote anything particularly right now. I know there's some various incidents and stories that I've told you before, and, um, and probably you have your own, whereby, you know, it's glaringly obvious that there's an energetic connection between us. Yeah. I was just talking to somebody in Glasgow today, and he's, he was saying how he and his twin brother well, we were talking about the Burma situation and what to do, making public statements, you know, is there any point? And, and he was saying how he and his twin brother feel this connection between them, even though they're not actually necessarily physically together, there's something there. And, um, or the, um, that incident that Ajahn Brahm likes to talk about of how the elephant and the elephant trainer in, in Australia, this elephant trainer had been with this one particular elephant for many, many years, and then he left that zoo and went to work somewhere else. Or maybe it was a circus. Anyway, the elephant was being transported one day. And then suddenly, completely unprovoked, on the outside level, there's nothing seemed to be going on whatsoever, the elephant went berserk in the truck that was transporting it. It turned out that at exactly that time, the elephant trainer that had left it, the elephant trainer, was involved in a motor accident and was seriously injured, if not killed. So we uh, sophisticated human beings are not always so tuned into what actually we know on another level. You know, we know things. There are things going. We, as I said, there is some evidence around these days. There's some scientific research that's looking into proving these things and helping us trust in it more. But even without the scientific evidence, I, I'm perfectly willing myself to trust that there is something there. We do affect each other. You dwell on negative thoughts of hate towards the generals of Burma, yeah. I don't think it's going to help. Uh, hopefully some of you read the message from Ajahn Sumato on the front door of the Dhamma Hall when you came in this evening. Yeah. To dwell with a heart of loving kindness and compassion for the generals of, of Burma, I think would be a more helpful approach. Yeah. To follow the example of Aung San Suu Kyi, talking about selflessness, Aung San Suu Kyi has said she's willing to stay under house arrest. She's already been there for, what is it, 14 years? She's willing to stay there until every of the political prisoners in Burma is released. She doesn't have to be there. And she could have left a long time ago. When her husband was dying, her husband, when she married her husband, she made it very clear to him that um, she loved him dearly and was happy to have children with him. But if the people of Burma needed her more, she was going to have to leave. Uh, she had this duty to her father and to the people of Burma and... And she wanted to honour that. And, and that time did come. And, and we all know that she, she won the election in and, and, and Burma, and, but wasn't allowed to um, receive the appropriate um, authority that came with that um, election. But when her husband was dying, uh, she didn't leave. Because if she left, she wouldn't have been allowed back in again. She, her commitment to her selfless commitment to Dhamma and to her people, uh, motivated her to stay there as a symbol, a symbol of a commitment to peace, for reconciliation, to democracy. And that's why, of course, the army generals are so scared of her. Yeah. She's got power. She's got tremendous power. And, but they can't touch her. And where does she have that power? Well, there's all sorts of symbolic reasons to do with history, but also the power of her commitment to Dhamma, to reality. 
she says about the army, she says, they're my brothers. Now how could somebody, after what's gone on, 14 years under house arrest, she's hardly got food a lot of the time. She's not allowed to see anybody. She couldn't even leave to go to her husband's funeral or see her children. But her commitment to Dhamma protects her heart from ill will, from resentment, from fear. And then the wise words that come out, and those of you that haven't read her books, I highly recommend them, um, books that are actually compilations of her letters that she's written, um, the wise words that come out for her are an expression of that heart that is protected by Dhamma. So this time of, of feeling personally, and, and I trust also collectively, very challenged by what we're having to hear and observe and, and feel about what's going on in Burma, I hope that these, uh, these words are encouraging in our contemplation of the predicament uh, and to not turn away from it, to not be intimidated by it. This too is something that we can include in our practice. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namayan, Namavadakasadu, Karanga, Namasee, 